you remember the good old days when all you had to worry about was getting your homework done and getting home before curfew? Before you had to worry about jobs, projects, working, when you could long for a summer vacation and a winter break? Well, this is the podcast for when you realize that life can be hard. Hold on one moment. <sighs> Finally, he's gone. The last thing I need to hear is him plugging another podcast. Come take a listen to my show, Adulting Ain't Easy, every other Wednesday on the Journey into Comics Network. The following, the following is a Journey into Comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. You're listening to Poor Entertainment. With your host, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Poor. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Poor Entertainment. This is episode three, and for those of you who haven't really been tuning in lately, Poor Report is no longer a show that I'm doing. I've kind of split the show into two. Poor News and Poor Entertainment now alternate weeks, where I get to talk about more entertainment news on this week's or on this show, which is Poor Entertainment, and then I talk about more political government, all that fun news on poor news, which I alternate weeks with now. It kind of lets me mix it up, so for people who don't like a certain type of news, don't really have to miss it. It kind of gives people a break for those who are just like, that's a little too much, I'd rather just do my own thing. So, there's a lot of news to talk about this week. Uh, those of you who were listening last week's episode, there was a lot kind of going on. I think one of the big news was that Michael Jackson's Thriller was no longer the number one selling album of all time. And it was placed by the Eagles best of from, I think it was like 72 to 76 or something like that. I don't remember the exact date, but still, that was, I think, the where the title came from. And kind of where I kind of want to pick up this, there's a lot going on in movie, music, TV news, all of that. So uh, a little bit I want to talk about there, but I kind of want to just um, kind of talk about what's going on. Like, one thing I really want to jump in is what I actually did like right before I recorded this, which was uh, Liz and I went and saw the movie Searching, starring John Cho. Uh, if you saw the trailer, it's uh, about a father whose daughter is missing, and the whole movie is told through the guise of technology and social media and all that, so it's all through screens. I found the film to be very innovative in its use of this type of medium. It's not a movie that we've seen before in a typical thriller or a mystery or that type of story. So I really, I really, really drew me in right away, and I was kind of stuck just focusing on that element and the whole hour and 45 minute runtime flew by there's a lot of twists and turns i really encourage everyone who has any like of thriller or this type of storytelling definitely check it out i you won't be disappointed by it but now i kind of want to just want to jump into the news for this week and there's been a bit since it's been two weeks since i've talked about it and one thing that actually just happened i believe it was yesterday was that we now have some new egot winners so for those who know, an EGOT stands for an Emmy, a Golden Globe, an Oscar, and a Tony. Um, people who have get all of those awards in their lifetime can, are considered EGOTs, which is what it kind of stands for. And over the weekend, due to a TV show musical giving a lot of people an Emmy award, it completed a lot of EGOTs for people. So one of the big names out of that was John Legend. Um, he made history twice for the weekend. The singer-actor won an Emmy at the Creative Arts Emmy Awards on Sunday in Los Angeles, along with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice for producing the Best Variety Special winner, Jesus Christ Superstar, live in concert. At 39, Legend is one of the youngest EGOT winners and also became the first African-American man to snag that honor. 
And like I said, EGOT stands for the big four awards in the entertainment industry, the Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, and the Tony. Uh, Legend has racked up 10 Grammys, starting with a Best New Artist win in 2006. In 2015, his song Glory featured in the film Selma won an Oscar, and he received a Tony in 2017 for his role as co-producer for the Broadway production of Jitney. Legend also played the title role in NBC Musical Special, celebrated his win on social media. He said, Before tonight, only 12 people have won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony in competitive categories. Sir's Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice, and I joined the group that we won an Emmy for our production of their legendary show, Jesus Christ Superstar. So I'm part of this team, so honor they trusted me to play Jesus Christ, so amazed to be in such rarefied air. Before um, his wife, model and TV personality Christy Teigen, celebrated with a photo of her kissing legend, a video of the performer putting his latest trophy on the top shelf of a display. So, yeah, good for them. Uh, I'm really surprised that Andrew Lloyd Webber has not been an EGOT winner up to this point. So, because and for those who don't know Andrew Lloyd Webber, like he's made every popular musical in in my lifetime and most people's lifetimes. So definitely kudos to him. And yeah, so good good for them. Uh there's probably somebody like I really don't care about award shows or any of that. So yeah, not your cup of tea, I understand, but it's nice for people to get recognized for the art and what they create. And moving on from one person's creation to another's kind of misfortune. And that involves um, Marvel's Spider-Man, which is a video game that came out last week, I believe, that a bunch of people who have PS4, because Xbox users like myself have no way to get that game, unfortunately. So, But for one person, it kind of became a sad uh, state of affairs regarding an Easter egg. And an Easter egg, for those who don't know, and if you listen to the Journey to Comics Network, I'm assuming you know what an Easter egg is, which is something hidden that's usually kind of a spoiler or something nice or something. It's a little something extra. And if you saw the movie Ready Player One, Easter eggs were definitely a big part of that. So, so Insomniac Games, who's the game developer, has offered to remove a marriage proposal Easter egg for a player after finding out that his relationship ended just weeks before Spider-Man launched. Back in May, Tyler Schultz tweeted, Insomniac Games asking the developer to help him out with his marriage proposal to his girlfriend of five years. The devs agreed, and on release, players found Schultz's Easter egg proposal emblazoned on a movie theater marquee in the game. The only hiccup... In all of this, that Tyler is now single, and upon hearing the news, Insomniac Arts director Jacinda Chu offered to remove the Easter egg by changing the sign to something else. I need your help. This may be selfish, but I'm ready to propose to my girlfriend and want to do it in a big way. Schultz tweeted at Insomniac. Is there any way you can put an Easter egg of Madison, will you marry me, anywhere in the game? Well, okay then. Who are we to say no to love? The studio replied before heading to their DMs to work something out with Tyler. By the time September 7th rolled around, everything was in place, but unfortunately, Schultz's relationship was not. He uploaded a video explaining what happened, but his since been taken down for violating YouTube's terms of service. Polygon reports that Schultz went into the nitty-gritty details of his breakup on the vlog. This might go down history as the saddest Easter egg. Uh, I don't know, he said. Regardless, I'm actually kind of happy that it's in the game. If anybody else wants to use that as their marriage proposal, please do. I just want to see someone get married through that thing. That sucks. Wants to change the sign to something else in a patch. Any suggestions? And someone like Jacinda Chu tweeted after hearing the news. The thread has since been deleted, with the only remnant being a tweet that says, Okay, new, now people are being mean. Comments thread deletion. Video game marriage proposals don't always go awry. Remember when PopCap included a wedding proposal in Peggy 2? Peggle 2? Of all spells, you can always make your own video game to pop the question. Marvel's uh, Spider-Man released last week on PlayStation 4 and features some of the significantly less depressing Easter eggs, which you can check out. Uh, that's just more stuff on IGN, so... 
But all the reviews and all the stuff I've seen from the game, it looks like phenomenal, and I'm kind of sad that I can't play it. But live and let live. And moving on from one video game, bit of news to another. And well, I guess it really doesn't involve movie news, but a big character nonetheless, and that involves what happened with the movie Predator. The Predator, as it's being gone by. So for those who know, I guess um, my understanding of this, there was a scene in the film that involved a registered sex offender, and Olivia Munn, who's an actress in that film, uh, reported it to Fox, I believe, maybe Sony? The Recorded to the studio, and the studio has since removed it from the film and then kind of faced a backlash from the director and the public. So this is an article involving another actor who, Sterling K. Brown, who broke his silence on the predator sex offender controversy. So Sterling K. Brown has commented on the ongoing controversy surrounding the predator after co-star Olivia Munn said, outing a convicted sex offender who worked on the film led her feeling isolated and lacking the support of her silent co-stars. I'm sorry you're feeling so isolated, my dear Brown wrote in a series of tweets tagging Munn's account in response to a story by The Hollywood Reporter where Munn said, I'm sitting here by myself and I should be with the rest of the cast. I'm sorry you've been uh, the only one to speak up publicly. I was not at the Toronto International Film Festival, so I didn't have the opportunity to be there with you. Brown mused, what is and, and is not for, uh, what is and is not forgivable, citing the criminal history of Stephen Striegel, who pleaded guilty in 2010 to allegations he attempted to lure a 14-year-old girl into a sexual relationship online. It's going to vary from individual to individual. You and writer-director Shane Black may differ when it comes to that issue. Brown wrote acknowledging he lacks the full details surrounding Striegel, uh, Black's friend of 14 years. With regards to forgiveness, I leave that to the individual. What I take issue with, Brown added, and I believe Shane addressed this in his apology, we all have the right to know who we're working with, and when somebody has been convicted of a crime of a sexual nature involving a child, we have the right to say that's not okay. Brown noted neither Studio 20th Century Fox or the cast were given the opportunity, with Striegel's past going undiscovered until Munn alerted Fox of his crimes. Pushing the studio to remove the now-deleted scene that sees Striegel's character, a jogger, repeatedly hit on the disinterested character played by Munn. Especially Munn, who was the only member of the principal cast who had to work with him, I so appreciate that you didn't leave well enough alone, Brad added. And again, I'm sorry you feel isolated in taking action. The actor ended the scene by thanking Fox for taking quick action and excising the scene, and Munn telling her, I hope you don't feel quite so alone. You did the right thing. Munn told Vinnie she took issue with her co-stars remaining tight-lipped on the controversy, saying she was confused upon seeing co-stars Keegan-Michael Key, Trevante Rhodes, and Boyd Holbrook giving Black a standing ovation during the film's premiere on Thursday. I looked back, and I didn't see... I see the guy standing up, and I was just confused because I hadn't heard from them during the day. Everybody else was sitting down. It wasn't like this massive sting ovation for him. I felt it was still appropriate to clap and cheer, but to actually make the gesture to stand up, especially in that moment, and privately I knew that no one reached out to me to say, are you okay? It did feel bad. Many of Munn's co-stars backed out of scheduled interviews where they were set to appear with Munn, according to Vanity Fair, with one unnamed actor walking out of an interview when asked about the removed scene. She had her lack of support letter feeling like the bad guy saying of the crazed ordeal. It's like I stumbled upon something that, and I'm now being chased by everyone and isolated. After coming under fire on social media for initial comments made to the LA Times, Black issued a new statement apologizing to everyone he let down by having Steve around them without giving them a voice in the decision. So, yeah, it looks like a lot of fun around the Predator set, and I know another podcast I follow was choosing to not review the Predator or to do anything regarding that in standing in solidarity with Olivia Munn, and I think that's a good move 
And moving on to probably one of the most interesting uh, thing I saw, and that involves a actor, uh, Jeffrey Owens, uh, from The Cosby Show, who kind of, uh, story went viral after they were, some lady took a picture of him working at uh, a Trader Joe's. And uh, I have a few articles that are going to kind of talk about how that developing story, but um, the first one is from CBS News revolving the woman who now regrets the decision. So the woman who took pictures of former Cosby Show star while he works at Trader Joe's in New Jersey says he she cried for half an hour after the strong social media backlash against the photo that allegedly job-shamed the actor. Many celebrities defended Jeffrey Owens and pointed out that many actors need to work day jobs between roles. Uh, Karma Lawrence tells NJ.com she took the photo on impulse and met no ill will towards Owens. She shuttered her social media accounts after her phone showed up on news sites and she received a wave of negative responses. So much hate, so much nationalist. Oh, it's been terrible, Lawrence said. They write, Karma's a bitch. It's bad. Lawrence said she was not thinking deeply about the possible repercussions when she took the photo and that it was not out of malice. She said she was not paid for the photo. I don't know why I stuck a picture, she said the 50-year-old grandmother. I figured everybody does it. I don't know what possessed me. I just did it. I didn't even think about it. I just kind of did it on impulse and it was a bad impulse. She added that she loved his character on the Cosby show, and if she saw Owens again, she would say she was extremely, extremely apologetic about what had happened. Owens played Elvin Thibodeau, the husband of the eldest daughter of Bill Cosby character on the TV show. The photo should have been a retro scanning, a New Jersey trade show complete with a uh, Joffrey named Jeffrey, name tag, but he no longer works there. Media attention has had its upside. Tyler Perry took to Twitter with a job offer saying, uh, Jeffrey Owens, I'm about to start shooting Owens' number one drama next week. Come join us. I have so much respect for people who hustle between gigs, the measure of a true artist. And kind of moving forward from that. Um, like I said, he um, he was offered by Tyler Perry, and he said, uh, Representative Ford told him that he has accepted the offer for Tyler Perry, who tweeted earlier this week that he wanted Owens to appear on his own television show, own the Oprah Winfrey Network. Uh, the haves and the have-nots. Owens' exact role of the show is unknown, but it will appear on multiple episodes. Owens, who's raised to fame as Elvin Thibodeau, like I said before, and like the whole story. Um, kind of hear more on his side of the story. So he told CNN interview on Tuesday, which was last Tuesday, that while he was initially devastated by the job-shaming attention, the support he received on social media was overwhelmingly positive. He said, I was only devastated for an hour or two, Owens said. It was hurtful, very short-lived. What has been sustained now over days is how much love and support there is, not just for me, but for working people. The idea that, hey, what's wrong with working at Trader Joe's or any job like that? Once said he worked at a grocery store for 15 months to help support his family, but left his position when he learned of the media coverage in the works. He said that he hopes his experience being called out for simply doing his job will help change attitudes about work. What I hope continues to resonate is that idea that one job is not better than another, Owen said earlier this week. A certain job may pay more, it may have better benefits, it may look better on paper, but that essentially one kind of work isn't better than another kind of work. That we reevaluate the whole idea and we start honoring the dignity of work and the dignity of the working person. Which is a really good statement to have. And it kind of takes me to another point, which is uh, the shaming of Jeffrey Owens and that didn't spill to see actors as laborers. This is a New Yorker piece, so I'm not quite sure. I haven't actually read this fully yet. It just sounded like an interesting headline, so... I'll apologize in advance if it's weird. So, not long ago, I was vis- uh, this is from Michael Shulman of The New Yorker. It's a cultural comment. So, not long ago, I was visiting the set of a popular TV show for a story and recognized an actor who was there shooting a guest spot. I remember Jeffrey Owens, not from Cosby's show, on which he played Elvin Thibodeau for five seasons, but from my sophomore year at Yale when he was teaching undergraduate acting. Owens, the son of the former U.S. Congressman Major Owens, had himself graduated cum laude from Yale in 1983. 
has since taught at primary stages in Columbia University. He's also been on Broadway most recently in 2013 in Romeo and Juliet and on prestige TV shows as The Affair. In other words, Owen is what we think of as a successful working actor. Known but not a, a celebrity with an IMDb page that rarely skips a year, apparently that's why a woman shopping at Trader Joe's last week in Clifton, New Jersey, was so jarred to see Owen's bagging groceries that she snapped his photo and sent it to the Daily Mail, which ran the headline from learning lines to serve in the long line. Fox News picked up the story and on Saturday, a Twitter storm erupted, most of it shaming Fox News for shaming Owens for working for a living. So 26 years after one TV job, the guy looked different, shock, and earning an honest living at Trader Joe's. The people taking his picture and passing judgment are trash. The actor Justine Bateman tweeted. The editor Max Weiss wrote, retweet if you think Joffrey Owens took a much more honorable path in his life than Bill Cosby. Even Dana Lish, the NRA spokeswoman, weighed in and says, I hate stories like this. He's a man working hard. There's shame and put publishing this story, but not in this man's job. And egregious as the story was, it was fitting subject going into Labor Day weekend. We don't tend to think of actors as laborers, despite the robust unions that represent them. Actors' equity and SAG-AFTRA, the most visible actors, serve as aspirational figures, celebrity, celebrated or vilified for their glamour and luxury. What we do hear about salaries, even in the context of gender discrimination, is often in the million-dollar range. As plenty of people pointed out on social media, conservative outlets like Fox paint Hollywood actors as coastal elites out of touch with working Americans only to turn around and expose one of them for earning a paycheck. There was, of course, a racial element as well, which the writer Mark Harris described as helped us to begin. See, even when you give them every opportunity, they still end up dot dot dot. One wonders if Owens would have drawn any attention to me upon working as a coal miner or some other saltier job as thought of as honorable and manly rather than a softer form of labor that is itself suffering what the Atlantic called the silent crisis of retail employment. Actors long been a part of the gig economy. Roles and benefits come and go unpredictably. Side jobs with flexible hours are in fact of life. The performers I have known have been office managers, uh, SAT tutors, dog walkers, PR assistants, financial advisors, and of course, waiters. One actor friend is learning calligraphy so she can start her own business. Capita I know used to wait tables at a restaurant uptown, but she wouldn't tell her friends which one it was for fear of being caught in the, one of, in the act of working. Even when roles do come along, they can be a financial strain. One friend of mine was recently in a sold-out off-Broadway show that was critically acclaimed and extended twice, for which she earned a starting salary of $506 a week. Most non-performers think of the struggling actor life as a temporary pit stop on the road to fame and fortune, but name recognition isn't a retirement plan. It's worth pointing out, too, that Owens is also a victim of Bill Cosby, with residual acts presumably drying up now that broadcasters are pulling the Cosby show from syndication. The Owens floor came just days after another actor had to explain the economics of the performing life. At a New Yorker gubernatorial debate last Wednesday, Andrew Cuomo called Cynthia Nixon a corporate dono and accused her of calling in favor with the mayor's office. You are a corporation, he repeated again and again. He was talking about Nixon's request that helicopter not fly over Shakespeare in the park performances, an obvious public good. She also maintained that she was never made political donations through her corporation. When Cuomo returned to the subject later, answering that Nixon was taking advantage of tax loopholes, she explained, Having corporations is something that actors have all the time. It's like being a small business owner or a freelance worker. She also denied media reports that she was worth tens of millions of dollars. When Mother asked her on the spot if she would forego the governor's salary, she said yes. Surely Nixon lives a comfortable life, but the focus on her personal wealth is not Kilmo's uh, implies some privilege over and above the work that she's done as an actor. By undervaluing the labor of creative professions, we put artists in a double blind. The artistic work isn't seen as work, but it's also assumed to be so lucrative that any non-acting job they might pursue as suspect. Jeffrey Owens and Cynthia Nixon both became famous after starring on beloved sitcoms, which means their work had value for millions of people, and yet we can't help make presumptions about their bank accounts. 
as if acting is less of a career than a ticket to dreamland. Press time to stop differentiating what kind of work we think is real, whether it's acting, bagging groceries, writing, governing a state, or tilling the fields, and start valuing hard work in whatever form it comes. Another good point. Um, and like it kind of draw on briefly. Um, it turns out that one of the factors that led to uh, Jeffrey Owens' work at Trader Joe's was because of Bill Cosby's fall from grace. So Owens told People Magazine that his household income was significantly affected by his Cosby show residual checks ceasing to arrive after the show's creator was embroiled in a sexual assault scandal. Yes, it impacted me financially at the time that the show was pulled that did make a difference in our income. It was one of the elements that led to me getting to the place where I said to myself, I have to do something, and I was thinking, what can I do? And the answer ended up being Trader Joe's, which is actually a wonderful situation for me in many ways. Uh, Owen said, but I got to the point I just had to do something to support myself and my family. Cosby was convicted earlier this year of sexual assaulting Andrea Castan in 2004 after more than a half dozen women testified that the comedian drugged and sexually assaulted them. Owens appreciated the extra income that his stint on the show, where he portrayed Elvin Thibodeau, which I'm saying again. Um, still, he didn't expect the Cosby show would provide him with enough to sustain himself for the rest of his life. I don't think I was set for life. I was single at the time, no family, and the Cosby show paid me f- some fairly decent money to- for a single guy who never expected to be on a TV and was just happy to be doing theater. Look, I had plenty of money, but set for life. Was set for life? No, but I was fine. While Owens didn't foresee himself working at Trader Joe's, he was happy to pitch and to help his family, and he was deeply upset by someone's attempt to shame him for doing so. I thought, well, you emailed it and said Owens. They went out of their way to find the very worst picture of me in the worst shirt and the worst posture. The words you described me were so demeaning it hurt. He was offered everything from guaranteed television roles to thousands of dollars in cash since the photo appeared in the public eye, but Owens' focus is still building his career his own way. I'm going to keep pursuing, I'm going to preserve, and even if and even if that means that eventually we, when all this hoopla dies down, I need to go back to another job outside of the business, I'm still willing to do that, he said. So yeah, definitely kudos for him. I hope he, I still wish him all the success. And I know the biggest article I want to talk about kind of is still more to come, but a couple of interesting bits involves, um, for those of you who remember, there was a movie that came out probably six or seven years ago, and that was Rio. It's an animated film about a, a blue bird who had like traveled to South America to find a mate to continue on the species. Well, it looks like that journey is not going to happen. So the blue bird from the Rio movie is now extinct in the wild. The uh, Spix Macaw achieved on-screen fame in the 20th century Fox's Rio as a charming parrot named Blue who travels thousands of miles in an attempt to save his species. But a study released this week found that the Brazilian bird is now extinct in the wild. The Spix Macaw is one of eight bird species, half of them in Brazil, confirmed extinct or suspected extinct in the report from BirdLife International. Deforestation is a leading cause of the Spix Macaw's disappearance from its natural habitat, according to the report. For the first time, extinctions of the mainland are outpacing those on islands, the study says. 90% 90% of bird extinctions in recent centuries have been on species on islands. However, our results confirm that there have been a growing wave of extinctions sweeping across the continents, driving mainly by the habitat loss and degradation from unsustainable agriculture and logging. In the 20th level, Blue was raised in captivity and travels from Minnesota to Brazil with his owner to repopulate the species with the last wild female of their kind, Jewel. But the movie was 11 years too late. The study found that Jewel likely would have died in 2000. That doesn't mean all hope is lost for the birds like Blue. The report says that all the species extinct in the wild, 60 to 80 Spix macaws still live in captivity. So, there's still hope, but the likeness that will, there'll be many more years of this species is probably a long shot. And now moving uh, 
on to another movie news, and that involves Mark Ruffalo and his role in Avengers 4. So Mark Ruffalo confirms the real reason Hulk wouldn't come out in Infinity War. For those of you who did see Infinity War, which it made billions of dollars, so I'm sure some of you saw it. Um, so Avengers uh, star Mark Ruffalo has spoken further about why Bruce Banner couldn't become a Hulk in Infinity War. The actor revealed that the plot point actually dates right back to a discussion he had with Joss Whedon when filming Avengers Age of Ultron, and it's the fact that Hulk actively fears Banner. We went back and forth a lot on how to end the movie with Banner, and do we repeat the Hulk coming at the last minute, or we try something new, he told the Marvelist podcast. And I think at this point we're all thirsting to have Banner be his own hero for once, he added. There's a conflict between brewing between Banner and the Hulk that's going on since the beginning, and it all came out to the question that Josh Whedon asked me when Hulk gets the fairy dust from Scarlet Witch sprinkled on him in Avengers 2. Josh asks, what is the Hulk afraid of? And those are hard things for me to answer, because what's the strongest, fiercest thing in the universe afraid of? What could he possibly? And then I realized it's Banner. The only thing Hulk is afraid of is Banner. And so that became something we've been rifting on since Avengers 2. We played a lot with it in uh, uh, Thor Ragnarok and continue to be teased out in Infinity War 1 and Infinity War 2. An interesting teaser at the end, there there is an issue that will continue to be prominent in as, as of yet untitled Avengers 4 due out next year. And the same interview, Ruffalo also answered a question about the future of the character in the next movie. Uh, I can't really talk about it, what I want, because I had, have had so much a hand in where it's going, my own little hand, he admitted. But I will say that I want to see this, uh... Banner versus Hulk conflict carried out and see where that takes us and sees can they uh, come to terms with it. Do they get a moment? Oh, I always thought it would be great to see them in some sort of subspace where they have to battle out with Banner's brains as some sort of his own superpower, like psych weaponry against Hulk's brute strength and have these two characters battle it out. I always thought that would be the ultimate comic book ending or something, opening to these characters. Avengers 4 has complete some additional uh, scenes this autumn after initially wrapping last year. The movie will be preceded by the 1990s set Captain Marvel movie, fronted by Brie Larson, that comes out in March. So, yeah, there's a little bit more tidbits for those of you who really like the Avengers series, and I'm one of them, so that's always fun. And there's just a little bit more to talk about here, and that one of those involves a band that most of you know, and that is Paramore. And they actually announced that they will no longer play Misery Business live in concert. For those of you who don't really know, I think Misery Business is probably their most well-known and popular song. They played at every show. It's kind of like their big closing number. I saw them in concert a couple years back. And, yeah, definitely it was a song that everyone knew the words to. Everyone stood up. And, yeah, the big to-do about the song. So it became the end of an era. So when Paramore's performed at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium Friday, frontwoman Haley Williams announced that the band would be playing its earliest hit, Misery Business, for the final time. Tonight we're playing the song for the last time, for a really long time. The stories that we have made because we feel that we should. We feel like it's time to move away from it for a little while, she said, appearing slightly nervous. This is happening, we're going to play it. Before launching into the song, William said, This is to every bad decision that led us here, this is to all the embarrassing things we might have said, but we owned up to it and we grew. Over time, the band has received criticism for this particular, particular lyric. Second chances, they don't even matter, people never change. Once a whore, you're nothing more, I'm sorry, that will never change. In 2015, Williams distanced herself from the song on Tumblr. Misery Business is not a set of lyrics that I relate to as a 26-year-old woman. I haven't related to it in a very long time. These words were written when I was 17, admittedly from a very narrow-minded perspective. It wasn't really meant to be a big philosophical statement about anything, she wrote. 
It was quite literally a page in my diary about a single moment I experienced as a high schooler. Williams did not sing the offending lyrics on the last night of the band's After Laughter tour. Last year, in celebration of its 10th anniversary of the band's hit album, Riot, William addressed the backlash to the song. The thing that annoyed me was that I'd already done so much soul-searching about it years before anyone else had decided that there was an issue. When the article began circulating, I sort of had to go and rehash everything in front of everybody. It was important, however, for me to show humility in that moment, she told Track 7. I was a 17-year-old kid when I wrote the lyrics in question, and it can somehow exemplify what it means to grow up, get information, and become any shade of woke. Then that's A-OK with me. The problem with the lyrics is not that I had an issue with someone I went to school with, that's just high school and friendships and breakups. It's the way I tried to call out her using words that didn't belong in the conversation. It's the fact that the story was set up inside the context of a competition that didn't exist over some fantasy romance, William said, adding. What I couldn't have known at the time was that I was feeding into a lie that I'd bought into. Just like so many other teenagers and many adults before me. The whole, it's not like the other girls thing, that's cool girl religion, what even is that? Who are the gatekeepers of cool anyway? Are they all mean? Are they women who, that we've put on top of unreachable pedestal? As you briefly explained on Tumblr, she's not ashamed of the lyric, and as Williams later told Track 7, for whatever reason I believed it was supposed to have written those backward words and I was supposed to learn something from them years later. Be more compassionate towards other women who may have social anxieties and towards younger girls who are at the very moment learning to cope, to relate, and to connect. We're all just trying our damnedest, and it's a lot easier when we have something... We have support and community with each other. Williams added, Vulnerability helps lay the foundation for all that. They had a lot of good statements tonight on the poor entertainment. And now kind of going into everyone's favorite form of entertainment, whether you think it's entertainment or not, and that is football. Now, I know some of you are like, during the Comics Network, sports, what are you doing here? So, football season started last, uh, a couple days ago. Uh, it's been in They've been playing preseason games for a bit, but Thursday night, this past Thursday night, kicked off the kicked off football season for a lot of people. And for those of you who play fantasy football like myself, it involves drafting and picking a lineup and getting all everything ready to those matchups that you have on the weekends. And for those of you, some of your high hopes of players you picked got dashed when they either got injured or they didn't do as well as you'd hoped, or if you didn't have Tom Brady or... Mike Evans or whatever in your lineup that you kind of just screwed from there. So I'm going to go over some kind of some key takeaways from uh, the opening Sunday in the NFL. So this is from the the Washington Post, and that is uh, six big takeaways from a thrilling opening Sunday in the NFL. So Andrew Rogers exited the field on a cart, and when he returned, he could bear weight only on his right knee. But that was not a problem for him. Rodgers is not bound by the same physical restrictions as the rest of the team. He can control an NFL game with glancing eyes and shuffling feet. He has his passes half the length of the football field with a liquescent snap of his right wrist when he's a second leg when he can levitate. Rodgers hovered over the start of the NFL season Sunday night, first with a disquieting sight of his grabbing his left knee and hitching a ride into the tunnel, and then with a debatable return, finally with pure magic. Rodgers led the Green Bay Packers back from a 20-0 deficit in the third corner while hobbling. They were 273 yards and three touchdowns on one leg in the second half, competing the comeback in a 24-23 victory of the Chicago Bears when Randall Cobb snared one of his darts and zoomed 75 yards for a touchdown. I just had a feeling Rodgers said after the game in his on-field interview with NBC, it was not universally shared when Rodgers emerged for the second, his presence seemed like an unnecessary risk. The Bears dominated the first half, with Cleo Mack leading a ferocious pass rush mere days after he dropped from the sky into their fortunate hands. Rodgers pers- 
uh, preservation felt far more important than whatever might have happened Sunday night. Last year, the NFL was diminished when he missed half the season with a separated shoulder. Playing on a bum knee with Mack and the rest of the Bears on rushing, Rodgers invited the possibility it could happen again. But by playing, Rodgers offered a reminder of what it would have been so terribly to see him get injured again. No player is more exhilarating than the touchdown throw he made to Geronimo Allison. The most important pass to Green Bay's comeback was a marvel. Rodgers stood on the left hash mark, calm in a chaotic pocket, tottering left and right just enough to keep Chicago's rush off balance. With only his back leg to support, his arm launched a rocket. The pass traveled 50 yards to the field, about 30 across, landing softly in Allison's arms in the middle of the end zone. That one throw brought the Packers back. Rodgers completed the comeback with a short pass, but one that still revealed his brilliance. Even without being able to move fast, Rodgers could manipulate Chicago's defense with subtle glances and shifts in his balance. He skipped to right, then back to his left, scanning the field until he flipped the ball to Cobb over the middle. One safety had vacated the middle of the field, and the other, Eddie Jackson, had been enticed to step up in front of Cobb when Jackson's lunge missed the ball. Cobb turned away and saw only green. Let it be said the Bears blew it. They led 20-0, and then their offense grinded to a halt. A more granular level, they had concrete chances to seal what would have been a statement. With just less than three minutes left, the Packers had exhausted all of their timeouts, and the Bears faced third and one inside Green Bay's 20. A first down, the Chicago could just melt the game away. One yard is all it needed. The Bears couldn't do it. Mitchell Dubisky dropped back to pass and found nobody open. Rodgers also received a bail at his first pass of the winning drive. Two plays before the strike to Cobb sailed directly at cornerback Kyle Fuller. The ball hit Fuller in the stomach, a victory in his grasp, and somehow he still dropped it. Rodgers had an opening, and that's all he needed. Rodgers may, may not be the best quarterback of his era, but he's arguably the most singular Possession of the most athletic genius of any of them, Rodgers had completed multiple Hail Mary passes. His sheer talent for throwing the ball is unsurpassed Sunday night. It was sickening to watch him leave the field and a little scary to watch him come back. And then reminded everyone why we watch at all. Definitely written by someone who's a Packers fan, but I did see bits and pieces of that game, and I kept up with it through the uh, NFL and ESPN app. It was kind of impressive to come back and do all that, but as a Bears fan, I'm kind of... Like, ah, they should have won. It was looking so good for half the game. Like, oh, this is New Year. Um, Picking up Cleo Mack definitely is something that I think people need to be afraid of for the rest of the games this season. I think he's going to be a force in the defense. And, yeah, we'll have to see what comes that. Um, If there's any residual injury from that. It would have been really unfortunate if on the first game out, if, like, Rodgers broke his leg and was out for weeks while it was recouped, or if he did something else to himself. But... As a Bears fan, that might have been the worst thing ever, but moving on from that to a couple of the big news and that, there's a lot more text here than I thought there were going to be, um, well, I guess maybe it's just that one, so I'll go, I'll run through it really quick, so, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick had a phenomenal game for the, uh, for the Bucks, and Jamie Winston may be done as the team's quarterback. Since the St. Louis Rams drafted Ryan Fitzpatrick in the seventh round of uh, wait a second, let's double-check the fact. Harvard, he had enjoyed and endured the strangest quarterback odyssey of his generation. He had started 120 games, he had won 48 of those, he had thrown 136 interceptions, 173 touchdowns, and averaged 6.7 yards per attempt, which are pitfall statistics. He also made more than $58 million, which is an inevitable total. He also never appeared in the playoffs. He's on his seventh team. A beard colonized his face a few years back, and he can't get rid of it. It's a lot to fit into 13 years. Sunday experienced his very best day of those 13 years. Fitzpatrick found himself starting for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the same reason he found himself starting at any other juncture. Something happened to the regular starting quarterback. Jameis Winston was beginning his three-game suspension under the NFL's personal conduct policy for Leslie groping an Uber driver. Weird. Uh, Fitzpatrick's presence was one reason Tampa Bay was 
the biggest underdog of the week in Vegas, getting 9.5 points from the Saints playing in New Orleans. Then Fitzpatrick did that. He started with a bomb to Deshaun Jackson and didn't stop heaving. He passed for 417 yards and four touchdowns while rushing for 36 yards. Another score. He outdueled Drew Brees in New Orleans and Tampa Bay won 48-40, spoiling the opening week in a million survivor pool entries for popular Super Bowl pick. Uh, the one thing Fitzpatrick has always been able to do is wing the ball downfield without fear and with adequate accuracy. There's a perfect attribute for a quarterback who can throw it at Jackson and Mike Evans. As the Saints poured secondary enabled him to show, Fitzpatrick was a great fit with Tampa receivers. And that means Winston, the number one pick of the 2015 draft, may be done as a starter in Tampa Bay. Given Winston's unsteady performance and erratic off-field behavior, the Bucks have little incentive to anoint him the starter once his suspension ends if Fitzpatrick plays anywhere near like he did Sunday over the next two weeks. Fitzpatrick may be the best quarterback in Tampa, and that may be the strangest twist yet in his career. And moving on, Buffalo looked like it was has no playoff shot and blowout loss to Ravens. What are the Bills doing? They traded Tyrod Taylor in the offseason, dealt A.J. McCarron late in training camp, and benched first-round pick Josh Allen for the purpose of handling their quarterback job to Nathan Peterman. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, they seemed bizarre before Sunday. Peterman chucked five interceptions and one half in his debut last year before coach Sean McDermott benched Taylor for him in the middle of an impromptu playoff run. The entire world realized Peterman was not cut out for starting in the NFL, and the Bills remained unconvinced. After Sunday, the choice just seems dumb. In 47-3 drubbing in Baltimore, Peterman completed 5 of 18 attempts for 24 yards and 2 picks. In baseball terms, Peterman is the career minor league reliever who gets a cup of coffee in some desperate moment, gives up 3 earned runs without getting an out, and retires with an ERA of infinity. So the Bills made him their week 1 starter. Remarkably, McDermott said he... Have to watch the film to get the full evaluation of Peterman's performance. By the end of the season, it will seem impossible that the Bills made the playoffs last season. It's possible that the Bengals have the best team in the AFC North. As week one's overreactions go, this one feels reasonable. The Ravens were impressive, but that was against the Bills at home. The Steelers tied the Browns. The Browns are the Browns. The Bengals beat the Colts in Elapis with a healthy Andrew Luck. The way they played is what makes the Bengals worthy of consideration. With second-year speedster John Ross healthy in the development of Tyler Boyd, the Bengals have one of the deepest stables of skill positions in the league. A.J. Green, Joe Mixon, Tyler Afford, Ross Boyd, that's a crew that can carry Andy Dalton, and Cincinnati's defense line starring Geno Atkins is scary. The Bengals are a playoff threat. And Joe Mixon definitely brought me big points in my fantasy league, so good for him. Uh, it may be a big year for rookie defense backs. San Diego safety Derwin James, a ridiculous versatile player at Florida State, who sipped in the draft after an injury spoiled his final college season, broke up a touchdown pass and record of sack on consecutive plays. Mike Hughes, a first-round corner, scored on a pick-six for Minnesota. Denzel Ward, the fourth overall pick, intercepted Ben Roethlisberger and kept up with Antonio Brown as well as possible. This doesn't count for Green Bay's Josh Jackson, who had a tremendous preseason, the best among any rookie defender, according to Pro Football Focus. Uh, the NFC South may not be as good as we thought. The Saints' defense headlined a rough week in the NFC South, which looked like it was the toughest division in the NFL heading into the season. The Falcons laid a leg Thursday night, offering a repeat of their debilitating red zone issues from last season. The Panthers beat the Cowboys 16-8, but their offense was slowed down in getting under new offensive coordinator Norv Turner. Tight end Greg Olson, besieged by foot injuries for the better part of the past two seasons, suffered another Sunday and watched the end of the game on the sideline wearing a walking boot. And that's, I think, our football news. Uh, there's something I can talk about which involves the whole Nike thing. I can't really decide if that's more entertainment news, which really isn't, or it's more political news, which I think it probably falls into. So I may save that and see if there's any more developments for next week. But a lot of it involves 
um, Colin Kaepernick being named the face of Nike's uh, 30th anniversary campaign, the Just Do It, I believe is the name of the campaign. Um, it's got a lot of controversy, and I'll probably dive into it more then, but it seems kind of interesting that um, how many people are upset about it. So, but I'll definitely, I'm going to save onto those. And I'll definitely talk about that more in detail with, um, with everyone on poor news next week, probably have some more information then. And one thing I found interesting, like right before I started recording, I kind of was scrolling through and I found this, and this is kind of, I guess the bridge I'm going to use between that. And that involves that Trump's been silent about Mac Miller's death, but for years he tweeted at him. So... Mac Miller was a rapper and unfortunately has passed away. And I didn't realize there was a connection between him and Donald Trump. I don't really follow music news that closely, at least before doing this part of the show. Um, so President Trump has been silent about the passing of Mac Miller, but before Trump entered politics, he had a lot to say about the rapper who died last Friday at 26. One of Miller's earliest singles, Donald Trump, was released in 2011. Trump appeared to be pleased when the song was first released, tweeting, Who wouldn't be flattered? After the song, music video racked up millions of views, but he soon turned to Miller. In January, Trump posted a photo of a plaque for the song he had received from Miller. The track would soon be certified platinum by the RIAA for 1 million downloads, and Trump claimed Miller didn't have the right to use his name. His Twitter from six years ago said, Little Mac Miller sent me an expensive plaque for making a song Donald Trump such a big hit. Mac, you still don't have the right to use my name. And pay no attention to the fact that uh, Little Mac Miller is something that we saw again with uh, Little Kim Jong-un more recently. So it seems like he's been working on his stuff for a while. Uh, throughout 2013, Trump attacked Miller on Twitter in a manner that's not familiar for those who read his tweets as a candidate or as a president. He called the rapper Little Mac Miller and a dog, threatened to sue him, and took credit for his song success. Uh, in a tweet, he said, Little Mac Miller, I'm now going to teach you big boy lessons about lawsuits and finance, you ungrateful dog. Trump lobbed insults at Miller and said he should be paid for the song. Little Mac Miller, I have more hair than you do, and there's a slight age difference. The big problem for Little Mac Miller is that he's going to have another hit... Another hit song, not just Donald Trump Bonanza, Trump tweeted in April April of 2013. Miller didn't have his hits after Donald Trump. He released five studio albums that reached the top five of the Billboard 200 album chart. And in 2013, The Way, with Andrew Agana, reached number nine on the Hot 100, his highest charting song. Trump tweeted to her about Miller at least 50 times between 2011 and 2015. He finally dropped his beef in March 2015, about three months before he announced his presidential campaign. His final tweet about Miller, Trump wrote the... Miller needed to come up with another hit, just do it. Uh, his tweet was, Wow, Little Mac Miller has almost 100 million views on his song, Donald Trump. Keep pushing Mac and come up with another hit. Just do it. Exclamation point. Miller's Donald Trump followed in the tradition of other rap songs that celebrated Trump before he entered politics. Trump was once a popular public figure to name check in songs in re- reference wealth and celebrity, but today many of the rappers have changed their tune about him, including Miller. When he started from running for president, I was like, ah, fuck, this is horrible. I have a fucking song with the dude's name, and now he's going to be such a fucking douchebag. He told Complex in 2013 session he could just have easily named after someone like Bill Gates instead. And in 2014, Miller tweeted that to his fans to not vote for Trump. Following Miller's death, fellow musicians have come out to share their thoughts and memories of him, and data from Nielsen Music found streams of music have risen 970%, according to the Billboard. Um... Definitely didn't realize there was a song. I, I'd be honest, I didn't really follow Mac Miller. I may have heard some of his songs on the radio, but I never, I don't think I ever downloaded one or really listened to it outside of the radio. But it's still unfortunate with someone so young passes away, and he'll probably go into that uh that club of uh famous people we lost too soon. 
And I think that does, I think I talked a lot this in this episode, so I'm going to wrap that up. But I want to thank you all for listening to Porn Entertainment for this week. I'm sorry if I sound a little quiet. It's been a long day, and it's been a lot of fun house stuff. Like, my, the fridge decided to break this week, so without a fridge and having to move all this stuff and ice and all that, it's just been kind of a drain. But it's Porn Entertainment Day, and it's always a fun time to listen and catch up and kind of get your taste of the news. So definitely check out all the other shows we have on the network. There's definitely a lot going on there. Podcast Free is moving to its own feed, which is great for them. I wish them all the success, and the fact they're still being a part of the network is still great because they make fun combat, and they're really the most off-the-wall show on the network. They tangent, and it's interesting, and just to be a fly on the wall of that room, I can't wait to be on another episode of that. But And you can also check out our Patreon, where you can just donate a dollar and get early access to all of our shows and the exclusive content that we have out there. And I know there's other tiers that give you more perks and... Like shirts, pins, all that stuff. And there's even a weird one that I don't really don't know if that's even legit. But who knows? But yeah, I'm tired. That does it for Poor Entertainment for this week. I'm Andrew Poor. Thank you again for listening. I will have another show for you next week that is Poor News. And then Poor Entertainment will be back with all of that after. So keep checking out the news. Do what you do. Thanks, guys.